Hello, you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, the conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity. Today's episode, I am very pleased to welcome back a good friend of the show, writer of the epic fantasy and Ringo Award nominated Spencer and Locke, um, also going to the chapel, both through Action Lab. Uh, we've had so much fun talking about Spencer Locke before, but he has a new book coming out. The OZ through Kickstarter, which I got a chance to check out the preview pages, and it looks like a lot of fun. But as you know, as I like to do on this podcast, I like to talk about origins, getting into creators' heads, figuring out how these stories came to be and what inspired them. So, well, first and foremost, David, thanks for coming back on. It's always good to chat with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the lovely introduction. And yeah, I'm so excited to talk about the OZ. Uh, it's like, what if Mad Max and the Hurt Locker took place in the Wizard of Oz? Uh, so I'm really excited for people who have read my previous work on Spencer and Locke. You're going to love this book. Um, and yeah, I, I, I couldn't be more excited to be back on the show to chat with you about it. So thanks for having me, Adrian. Anytime. Um, I also do want to point out that the OZ also features uh, work from artist Ruben Rojas, colors by Whitney Kogar, DC Hopkins does letters, and uh, the main cover is done by uh, Ruben Rojas, and variants are done by Monhouse, Rio Burton, and Kenneth Wagnon. Now, obviously, we've spoken before in great detail about your other works, and while I promised you at the front of the show that we were going to strictly talk about the OZ, but... I did want to give some sort of preface because knowing your work and the type of stories that you like to tell, there's definitely like a thread in your stuff. And something that I always appreciated about, let's say, Spencer and Locke was taking characters like Kevin and Hobbes and finding like a new twist in them, almost like a reimagining, but less in a, oh, wouldn't it just be cool to like screw around with these characters? Uh, You took a very cool premise. You gave it life. You gave it identity. You gave it its own sort of personality and spirit. And reading pages for OZ, I noticed that sort of similar thread. And like you said, it is sort of like the Hurt Locker meets the Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. So I really want to get an idea as to not just what the story is about, but also why the story. (laughs) Because, and I know that sounds like a a sort of a dickish thing to ask somebody, but I mean that in the most like sincere (laughs) way of, you know, it's a a very interesting premise. I really want to just get into your head about like, how and why this happened? <laughs> no, I, I don't take it personally. What iota? I think I think that's a, a perfectly reasonable question uh, for the guy who keeps ruining everyone's childhood. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. So so the the way this story came to be, uh, you know, we've recontextualized uh, Dorothy Gale killing the Wicked Witch of the West as something like a botched regime change, and so. When Dorothy clicks her heels three times and returns home to Kansas, she's inadvertently left Oz in a power vacuum that's led to years of brutal civil war. Right. The OZ picks up a generation later with Dorothy Gale's uh, granddaughter and namesake, who's a disillusioned Iraq war veteran. And she's come back home to Liberty, Kansas, uh, with some real scars and some real trauma and some real guilt. And she's trying to put the pieces of her life back together. Unfortunately, when a tornado strikes, our new Dorothy finds herself stranded in the war-torn land of Oz. And so she's going to have to navigate her past and her grandmother's former friends if she hopes to survive the occupied zone, or as the locals call it, the OZ. The way that this story came happened, this is this book has been a long time coming. Um, okay. This 
was one of the first ideas I came up with after the first volume of Spencer and Locke came out. Um, I, I, I had three ideas in my back pocket, one of them being Spencer and Locke 2, uh, the other one being my most recent book, Going to the Chapel. Uh, I was the uh, world's worst best man at my oldest friend's wedding, and uh, the, <laughs> the, the misadventures that came from that inspired me to think what would be the wor- story of a crime set at the world's worst wedding, uh, and then the OZ. And the thing is, is you know, I, I, I'm so grateful for the response that Spencer and Locke has gotten. Uh, people have seemed to really universally accept it and embrace it. And we were nominated for Ringo Awards and we were uh, we were optioned. But that did not seem quite so obvious when we were making it. Um, you know, when you have a pitch that's what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City, uh, you either succeed or you fail, but you can't do right. it quietly. It's going to be loud. Um, I I think that was in, in many ways – part of our book's success was so many people checked us out just to see if we were going to stick the landing or if we were going to eat dirt. And I think they were just as surprised as anybody else when we stuck. (laughs) And so I was convinced when that book was coming out, I was like, I may be run out of the industry for this. Um, I might not do another book if people hate this one. (laughs) Right. And and thankfully when the dust settled and I kind of poked my head out and I saw it was safe and people seemed to like the book, that was when I gave myself permission to make a go at being a comics writer. And so the OZ came into being, I wanted it, I'd already done crime and I was working on a rom-com um, with going to the chapel. And I said, what's, what's a big swing kind of genre and uh, sci-fi and fantasy, you know, are, are, are two of kind of the biggest swings I think you can take mm-hmm. sci-fi. I have since written sci-fi books, um, but they're really challenging. You have to set rules for the world, and then your characters have to navigate those rules. Right. Fantasy, it's kind of the opposite. There, uh, you know, there's so much metaphor and and themes that warp around your characters. Your characters are are driving the story and the magic of it all. And so, uh, you know, I, I've been a fan of, for example, you know, Shazam or Doctor Strange for for those same reasons. Um. And so I I, I said, okay, I want to do something in fantasy. And you know, based on my other work, I never do anything straightforwardly. So I was like, what? <laughs> no, absolutely not. What's a twist that I can do on fantasy? And so I, I wrote down almost like a, like a mood board on, on a Google doc. I wrote down just fantasy stuff that I had really enjoyed growing up. Things like Lord of the Rings or Lloyd Alexander or Piers mm-hmm. Anthony or Harry Potter. And I wrote down the Wizard of Oz. And as my cursor was flashing on the word Oz, I was like, you know, that word, it's so short, but it's so iconic. And I thought, what if that was an acronym for something? And I thought of the book DMZ. And then I thought, oh, it's the occupied zone. And it kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning. I said, oh, this isn't just a fantasy story. It's it's a war book. And uh, the image that kind of burned itself into my mind that Ruben Rojas channeled so eerily well in his main cover this idea of Dorothy uh, reimagined as this haunted soldier and the Tin Man as this uh, as somebody who's been destroyed and rebuilt so many times that he's been turned into this towering war machine freedom fighter. And I was like, that's cool. And for me, I always tend to try to put some of my ideas on ice for a little while just to make sure that, like, I still like them in a few weeks. Right. And so, I, you know, I, I could not escape this idea. And what happened, uh, you know, we actually, uh, you know, and this goes to show how long this has been in development and sort of the zigzag path we've taken. Um, I actually did develop this uh, at one point for a publisher. Publisher loved the idea and said, I really want you to flesh that out. Let me see what you got. And we made it all the way to the one yard line. 
And what happened was there was another creator who was much more established than me who um, had a kind of a dark fantasy book that was being pitched at the same time. And so the publisher quite, I, I totally understand, had to kind of make a choice of, you know, which one are we going to do? Right. And they went with the other one, I'd and, imagine. And they went with the other one, which that's fine. No worries. No, no skin off my nose. But what happened, which was really kind, was the editor that I was working with, they, they took the time to message me and they said, you know, when they delivered the bad news, they said, you know, I want you to know this is not a reflection on you or your hard work or, or how good this concept is. I think you've got a winner on your hands and I would wholeheartedly recommend that you continue to pursue this. And so um, that was particularly encouraging for me. So that kind of pushed me to, to develop this project further. Then I found Ruben Rojas, uh, our artist for, for the project. I found Whitney Kogar, our, our colorist, and DC Hopkins, our letterer. And, um, you know, as, they, as Ruben was starting to put together pitch pages, I was so blown away by what he did just from the first six pages and cover. I said, Ruben, keep working. I promise you that come hell or high water, I will get this book made. Right. And uh, sort of fast forward to, to today. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the OZ really kind of helped me solve one problem with another in the fact that, you know, even at the best of times, publishers can be chaotic with their acquisitions pipeline. I, I had one publisher who was very interested in the OZ and we would have a conversation and they'd be like, we're really excited. Like, we really want to pick this up. I was like, great, send me a contract and we'll get to work. And they were like, OK, give us a few weeks. We'll get that squared away. And then, like, the conversation would lull, and then we'd start the conversation again, and it would be the exact same conversation. It was like Groundhog Day. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, I had been looking at Kickstarter for a very long time. I had said, you know, I'm friends with people like Charlie Stickney, the creator of White Ash. Uh, my buddy Ryland Grant just finished a Kickstarter for his book, The Jump. You know, Pat Shand, who's got a Kickstarter up right now for uh, Ichabod Jones. And a, and a whole laundry list of, of L.A.-based comics creators who have all had success on Kickstarter. But shout out to Pat Shand, by the way. I didn't mean to cut you out, though, but he has been a short freak of times and always enjoyed his work. But that's really cool. He's he's wonderful. I, I, I actually just spoke with him on the Space Between podcast uh, just last week. He and his wife, Amy, are just wonderful, salt-of-the-earth people. So shout out to Pat. Um, Pat was actually very instrumental. He, he, he gave me some very needed edits on my Kickstarter campaign just before we started. Uh, basically saying you need to cut a third of what you've written at least. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and I think it, I think it helped me out in a big way. I think it was Charlie. Uh, if it was Russell, I'm sorry, Russell for, for misattributing, but I believe it was Charlie who, who sat me down at one point and goes, look, there are some people who buy their books primarily at comic shops. And there's some people who primarily buy their books on Amazon or comiXology. And there's some people who primarily book, buy their books at cons, which is where I had had a lot of success before the pandemic. He goes, there are people who primarily buy their books on Kickstarter. And it was kind of like a light bulb went off. And I said, oh, there's a whole demographic of readership that I have done no outreach to. It's something that I need to do. Right. And, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, uh, particularly with the, with the diamond shutdown, I think a lot of people took stock on, on how they're going to do business, how they can't just rely on one stream of readership anymore. It changed, it changed everything. And I know that, you know, I, you're not the first creator that I've spoken to about how the landscape has changed post pandemic, but yeah. it really can't be, you know, restated just what it did and both positive and I guess negative also, sure. because I think it also, like you said, it required 
creators and publishers and everybody else to really rethink their strategies and in a lot of ways think outside the box since some of the normal channels right um either were limited or just completely inaccessible yeah i mean so you know for me i was just kind of like oh like you know i had two issues of the oz fully drawn and i'd written the entire series already and i was like wait a minute why am i waiting for permission anymore we can totally bypass all these hurdles and just go to kickstarter we can we can reach out to the readers directly and i think seeing the sheer level of of overwhelming support that we've gotten for this book we're we're closing in uh we're we're close to a thousand readers at this point that's bonkers um really good you know and and we still have another 11 days left of the campaign and so yeah it's been um it's felt like a leap of faith rewarded in a lot of ways. And it feels very vindicating because I think, you know, and again, I love traditional comics publishers. I still have work with traditional comics publishers coming. So it's not, you know, any shade, you know, uh, intended, but for me, it, it, it's more like it can be a little conservative sometimes and what they choose to pick up. And sometimes it can be a little esoteric, which is not where I like to play. I like to be mm-hmm. a little more universal and, ex- and accessible. And so, the fact that we can just say, if I feel like I've got a project and a team that I really believe in, I don't have to wait anymore. Right. I can just, we can just release it and not be chained to the month to month schedule, uh, which I think is also important. I think that really is beneficial in a major way, you know, and, and I think it's very empowering for me as a creator, especially, you know, I used to know, I mean, I know how to write. I, I, I practice, <laughs> um, you know, I, I know how to do project management based on my other books. I know how to do publicity, but I didn't know anything about, you know, production work or how to get something print ready or how to, how to do shipping and fulfillment. And now I do. And I think that was the missing piece of the puzzle. I think now as a comics creator, I'm in a position to make myself more self-sufficient and not be beholden to, to a publisher's whims. Right. And Kickstarter, when they respond strongly to a book, publishers start... They start noticing. They start noticing. And so, you know, for me, like, we, we don't really... We don't have any deals in place. But, like, I'm not going to say no if the if the OZ gets a second life in the direct market. But as I've said to anybody who, who will ask me, the Kickstarter community is the one that put their faith in us. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that I'm going to be catering to first and foremost. I am fully committed to we are doing three Kickstarter campaigns to tell the story of this book, whether or not, you know, it makes another appearance in the direct market. That's sort of the cherry on top. But the book exists and there's an audience for it. And uh, that just makes me uh, so stoked as a creator. And something you touched on, I think, is also really important when we talk about the industry and again like you said no shade is this is not a condemnation at all yeah it's just more of coming to it's more of a realization actually yeah um you mentioned that you know you were familiar with these certain facets of the industry but you know during like said the kickstarter doing production work even as far as like you know shipping and things like that these are facets that i think that a lot of people and if you can there's nothing wrong with knowing more facets of how the business is run or any business is run. Yeah. Um, mainly for not only just the creators involved, but even I think just even the readers, because, you know, so much of what this podcast was, even for me, was I will admit I took for granted that, you know, every month 
I'd go to my shop or wherever and the new issue of whatever book was coming out. You don't really think about the steps it took for that book to come out or if it got delayed or even if it got canceled or maybe my mail order was late. You know, it's yeah. like, and I think that knowing this from, I think from both the reader and the creator helps out everybody to, I think, get a better understanding of just what goes into all of this stuff. Yeah, like, uh, exactly. Like, I, I think it's, it's very easy to take it for granted, uh, especially right. as a creator. I think, uh, you know, that that is, uh, you know, having worked with with a publisher like Action Lab. Yeah, I was just sort of like I turn in the book and, you know, I got to pound the pavement to make sure people know about the book. But like at the end of the day, I know they're going to send it to the printer. But even, you know, we, we had delays with uh, with going to the chapel, for example, where it's sort of like, oh, well, you're sort of held hostage by the publisher and the printer. Now I'm kind of like, oh, well, I have a relationship with a printer now. And so now it's just kind of like, oh, well, you know, it it's it's certainly an existential crisis. And I think it's one that will certainly change the way that negotiations happen in the future, because, right. yeah, there's going to be people who say, well, like they're going to expect more from their publishers, whether that's financially or just in terms of the sheer amount of manpower and investment they are going to put. Mm-hmm. In exactly. For me, especially, who's somebody who likes to have a, a level of communication and control with the rest of his collaborators, that's really empowering for me, where I can say, look, you know, the book is paid. I've already assembled the team. We've already written it. So that means that I would want, uh, you know, a publisher to really kind of invest their time and their effort in promoting it. Since, you know, other than that, what's the financial skin in the game? Exactly. It, it's, it's, a, it's a whole new world out there um i think i think things are very different than they were a year ago and that i think even more than they were six months ago <laughs> i was about to say like not even a year ago like things just changed like it was almost like a thanos snap yeah that's a great way of, 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 of thinking about <laughs> it and uh yeah i think you see a lot of creators now who are really taking stock i mean you see scott snyder launched uh his kickstarter is sort of uh, uh you know almost like an ash can version of his upcoming image book, Noctera boom studios is offering that new Keanu Reeves book berserker almost is like a pre-order for, for uh, trade paperbacks coming out next year. So yeah, I think a lot of people are taking stock and, and, and saying, okay, like we need to reach out to this community and, you know, as an indie guy, of course I have my level of trepidation about it. Um, You know, of course in part, not that I feel like, oh, you know, a big publisher is going to suck the Kickstarter community dry, although I, I suppose there is some some element of, of truth to that. For me, it's more of I, I consider Kickstarter to be something that's very empowering to creators, the same way that Image was really empowering to creators uh, when they started. You know, they, they, they gave people a creator-owned deal in an era where creator-owned deals didn't really exist. And Kickstarter, I think, gives creators a financial stability that sometimes traditional publishers do not. And so my, I guess, concern about publishers being the forward-facing element is it gives them all the leverage. It sort of says they get to determine how much, if any, uh, you know, what the creators get out of the Kickstarter. And they also, more importantly, and this is kind of an unforeseen thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, Kickstarter is also about outreach. You know, if we have a thousand readers picking up the OZ, that means when I have another book out, 
that's a thousand people that I can reach out to directly and say, hey, mm-hmm. if you like the OZ, I have this book out. And so having the publishers getting that database versus the creators getting that database, it's is, is something that I am keeping my eye my eye on. Um, but you know, it's it's early days. Uh, you know, there's the the one thing is not every Kickstarter is going to have Keanu Reeves in it, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, that's also the other thing is that, and no disrespect to Keanu Reeves, like obviously I love a huge Keanu. fan. Yeah, but John Wick, man. <laughs> right? And I'm still bummed out that we're going to have to wait to see uh, part four. Yeah. But when you have a Kickstarter or just any really campaign, you know, your indie creators, there's always that push and pull of, you know, there's certain names. And again, no shade at all, but it's just that there's going to be names that are going to definitely draw more eyes. But even like I said, with the Kickstarter, you know, indie creators are will have to, of course, work twice as hard just to make sure that they're visible as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's a push and pull. Um, I think, I think it's the, 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 the one thing is I think traditional publishers will realize that like running a Kickstarter is hard. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I've said to a lot of people, it hits you different, um, than a direct market launch. You know, you've got three months to promote your book. And so you're able to kind of spread it out a little bit more to, then you have sort of the pre-release publicity, and so it's it's spread out over a, a wider uh, margin, whereas Kickstarter, no, you're leaving it all out on the field for 30 days, and um, you 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 cannot account for that level of speed um, it, until you've done it the first time. Zach right. Quaintance, who uh, a buddy of mine who just wrapped his Kickstarter for Next Door uh, this morning, uh, he told me specifically, he's like, it is going to be a time suck that you are not prepared for. Like you're going to be checking constantly. Like, what are your backers looking like? Sending thank you notes, uh, constantly promoting on social media, constantly ping ponging between interviews and written interviews and everything under the sun. You know, you're going to be constantly pounding the pavement to see for people to talk to. You're going to be constantly checking social media, and you're going to be kept checking Google to see if anybody's talking about the book. It's something that I have been used to at a maybe a lower gear. Um, for for the direct market, but Kickstarter really ramps it up, and uh, yeah, it's it's so it's it's one of those things that Kickstarter, you know, it's based in in, in the core concept of the site. It's high risk, high reward, and so uh, I do think that, that that's something that friends of mine have uh, and I have discussed is not every Kickstarter is going to have Keanu Reeves, and so they're going to have to pace themselves, and knowing that like not every book is going to be an instant sell itself slam dunk that way right um and and so i think kickstarter will have some degree of self-selection but i always want to make sure that at least for me i I want that platform to maintain its status as a platform for independent creators because like we said going back to to, to earlier the traditional publishing pipeline could be fairly conservative uh fairly risk averse and so there are people who might not necessarily navigate that pipeline smoothly and that's what kickstarter's for so uh you know we'll 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 see what where the future goes uh but i'm 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 very excited to be a part of the kickstarter community that's cool and i'm glad that you're kind of taking that transition and this new experience sort of head on i think that's remarkable because it's like you almost have to it's like a you know adapt or die kind of thing yeah exactly i mean and that's 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 been that's been comic since the 50s 
mm-hmm. and to be honest, you could even say that's that's been entertainment uh, for a long time. I worked at, uh, at CBS in New York once upon a time uh, before I became a comics writer. And, you know, there was always this question of, you know, what's going to, you know, is this going to be the thing that kills broadcast? Well, cable didn't kill broadcast and HBO didn't kill broadcast. And, you know, streaming's not going to kill broadcast. Um, you know, uh, DVR is not going to kill broadcast. Like, you're going to evolve. And you might lose some people and you might gain some new ones. Yeah. You, you know, it's. It, it, I mean, I, I said this in an interview last night, is that I, I didn't realize until I did Kickstarter, there's kind of a diaspora of readership in, in comics in particular. So uh, there's been for a very long time, and I'm glad that people are now really starting to like, at least on a base level, starting to understand that. Yeah, but, you know, it's like there are different pockets of potential readers, but none of them are always in the same place or consuming it in the same way or from the same channels. And I think it's up to us as creators and as an industry as a whole to kind of reach out and mm-hmm. invite more people to the same table and build that wider consensus. You know, you can't tell me that there aren't people who love comics when you see, you know, Webtoons numbers hitting six six figures. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you got that. You've got, you know, uh, you know, Kickstarter. In fact, Keanu Reeves just made, you know, half a million dollars in, in two days. Um, you know, don't tell me that there aren't people out there who want to read comics. Are they going to be the ones that are necessarily going to, you know, get in line to read the next event book? Maybe not. But I think, you know, or even the people who are going to be Wednesday Warriors, maybe not. I think it's it's really incumbent upon us, though, to try to to do outreach to these communities. And I think as a creator who wants to be here for the long haul, I see that as the future. You, you got to kind of weave between all these different reader pools. And then, you know, as you've sort of established trust with people, say, hey, by the way, I know you don't usually go to a comic shop, but... I've got these stories here, or you can get them on Comixology, or you can get them on Amazon, or you can get them, you know, when I'm at a con. But just offering people different ways of of experiencing your stories is going to be the way of the future. Right. So one question I did want to ask, and I guess this is probably my biggest question regarding this book. Yeah. And something we talked about in great length when talking about Spencer Lock, both one and two. Yeah. I know there was like a balancing act, and you spoke on this in great detail regarding wanting to tell a gripping crime story that dealt with things like trauma, mm-hmm. you know, PTSD, yep. um, you know, a, a lot of these situations that are are heavy topics. Yeah, and also trying to do so in a way that's engaging, but also not either heavy-handed or also playing it up for almost like a for laughs. Yeah, for laughs. Yeah, uh, you hit it right on the head. So, and I was thinking with the OZ, because, you know, we're dealing with, well, mm-hmm. a fictional area, which, real quick aside, mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz, now in frame about it, it really is kind of like a very pleasant war story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I, I, you know, Dorothy, Dorothy literally kills two wicked witches and convinces the Wizard of Oz to leave in like a week. Yeah. And then leaves. Um, which which is kind of how I got to this story because I was like, there's no way that gets wrapped up in a neat little bow that, that turns into Baghdad that turns into game of Thrones. Right. Um, So I was just wondering, was there ever like a challenge in telling this story to, you know, of course, tell this spin on a classic, but also, mm -hmm. you know, uh, matter of fact, in one of the pull quotes in a press release, um, uh, also shout out to Frank Gogol had mentioned basically Mm -hmm. writing a book like this, but also saying something. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I think you really hit it on the head. I mean, whenever I tackle something kind of dark like this, it's always a balancing act. And you want to make sure that first off, just that you're not telling a story that's like depressing or, or, or oppressive. But like you said, you you don't want to punch down. Uh, you don't want you don't want to treat. There are real people out there who live with trauma and PTSD um, and, and guilt and disillusionment, whether they have served or not. Right. Um, you know, there are real people who live with this and I've always been a believer that if you treat your characters with empathy and compassion and respect, you're ultimately treating your readers with compassion and empathy and respect. Um, you know, there are real people who live with this and I never want to take that lightly. Um, my first job out of college, uh, I was a newspaper reporter. Uh, I, I, I worked for the Berkshire Eagle in Pittsville, Massachusetts. It's kind of the westernmost part of, of the state. You, former GE town, uh, you know, economically depressed. Um, and amongst the beats that I covered, I covered uh, state politics. Uh, I covered the crime beat. I was covering calling uh, police stations every night. Some of the other mini beats that I covered was the local mental health beat and the local military beat. And so I interviewed a lot of veterans coming home who were kind of grappling with how to reintegrate back into society, particularly in an economically depressed area that didn't get all the tax dollars, didn't have all the infrastructure, and didn't get all the spotlight. So um, hearing their stories about not just the hypervigilance and not just the intrusive thoughts that would kind of hit them without warning, sort of taking them back to these traumatic moments, right? but it was the feeling of isolation of, of, of alienation this 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 struggle to articulate what they saw and how they were feeling because if you haven't served you you, you won't be able to understand it the way that somebody who has been there has and so um i was really fortunate i also you know i'm i'm friends with people who have served and uh you know one of my buddies uh from college for example uh was a combat medic in afghanistan and so he and I talked a lot, uh, some of it just kind of the granular, like, am I using this lingo right, to sort of the more big picture stuff of, like, how did it get like this? How did Have we been here for so long? Is there a way for us to ever extricate ourselves? I think a lot of those conversations uh, really stuck with me, uh, both for the development of the OZ, but I think just in general of the kinds of stories that I tend to explore. I think you know, whether it's something dark like Spencer and Locke or the OZ or something a little lighter in its feet, like going to the chapel, um, all my stories deal with trauma. I think trauma as a narrative theme, it's something universal. I think we all have it to some degree. Anybody who says they, they aren't are either, is, are either deluding themselves or, 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 or lying to you. Right. I used to think that trauma just shaped us. That was sort of my Spencer and Locke line of thinking, um, that it would sort of, uh, determine how we react to certain situations and our personalities and our likes and dislikes. I do. I still think there is truth to that. But as I've been writing the OZ, I, I think my thinking has evolved a little bit. I think our traumas are kind of the themes of our lives. We always circle back to them, whether it's something that happens every once in a while or something that's more repetitive. Right. The tenor of our lives is shaped by what happens when we face our, our our traumas. Sometimes we're able to transcend them and overcome them, and that's wonderful. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we spend our lives trying to escape it or bury it or or, or pretend it, it, it's not there. And there's no judgment to that. You know, not, not all traumas are created equal, but they all shape us to some degree. And I think there's something cathartic 
in having a narrative where somebody is able to face their past and is able to, if not sort of dispel their trauma, at least kind of live with it. And I think that's something cathartic. And I think that's something that a lot of readers can find inspiration and hope in. And I think that's ultimately what gives books like Spencer and Locke. And, and, and I think the OZ, uh, some of it, it, their more lasting punch. Right. And that was essentially why I think that book did so well and got so much buzz because like I said, there was a heart to it. Yeah. It, there wasn't just shock value. It wasn't just exactly. It wasn't, you know, dark for the sake of being dark. And I know there's an audience for those books, you know, so that's fine. But I know for me, like reading that book, you know, I always go back to that line, I'm as real as you need me to be. And it's just kind of like that to me, like it just hit home. And ever since then, it's like, I feel like you've taken that approach. And I'm really excited to see what this book Thank you. does. And I'm, you know, obviously everybody who's listening checks it out, which we probably should for the folks at home. Let everybody know, like, um, so I go to just Kickstarter. So I just look up the OZ. Yeah, so you can uh, you can go to Kickstarter and look up the OZ. You can also visit bit.ly slash the OZ comic. That'll take you straight to our Kickstarter page. Um, or you can visit um, the OZ comic on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And we have links straight to the Kickstarter page on all three of those. Very cool. David, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm actually really glad that we talked a lot about the Kickstarter stuff because I think that's something yeah. that a lot of people may have questions about. And I'm glad that, like... We're putting it out there because I think the more people are aware, the better yes. we can navigate in the future. And absolutely, information is power. So, again, thank you so much. And this has been a great thank you. time. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all your listeners for checking in. We want to build our readership as wide as possible because I promise you I'm not getting rich off this Kickstarter. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing three more of these, but I'm paying for 140 pages worth of art and covers and shipping and printing. It, I promise nobody gets into comics for, uh, for the money. I don't want to preach to, to the choir anymore. I want converts. And uh, I think the OZ, we, we tell a human story, but with universal archetypes. And if you've liked any of my previous work, you're going to love this. If you haven't read any of my previous work, I can tell you it's one of the most beautiful books I've, I've ever had the pleasure of working on. It goes toe-to-toe with anything in the direct market as, as far as the art is concerned. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, so, so join us. Uh, become a Yellow Brick Road Warrior and uh, uh, find us in the trenches of the OZ. Um, before you go, though, as I always like to do, let everyone know if they want to interact with you online and your social yeah. media accounts. Feel free to throw them out. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at PeposD. It's my last name, first initial. You can also follow David Pepos Comics on Facebook, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks, at bit.ly slash pepnews. Very cool. And thank you so much all for listening. And uh, definitely check out DOZ, check out Kickstarter, and also just, you know, as I always say, support indie comics and just indie creators because, you know, A, they're awesome, and B, again, like I said, every little bit of support helps. And we will end this podcast by letting everybody know that Agent Has Issues can be found on agenthasissues.com. We could download and stream every episode. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and wherever other fine podcasts are downloaded and streamed. And we will end this episode by asking the question, every creator has a story. What's yours? Have a good night.
For more great podcasts, visit adrianhasissues.com.